This is In Her Boots. I'm Tiffany Lachey. I think a good way to start would be with you pronouncing your name correctly because for years, for years, you allowed me to mispronounce your name. Sorry. Gajua. <laughs> you say it like with the back of your tongue. So Gajua, you take the back of your tongue, press it at the roof of your mouth and do the G sound. So it's almost like a G, like a G and a K mix. So you ga, so you kind of roll the G into the hard K. Ga, and then Zhua. When you make the Z sound, it's, you're vibrating like the whole of your tongue, like all of your tongue up against your roof. So Ga, Zhua. And what do, how do people normally pronounce it? Uh, other Americans <laughs> call me Kazua. Or young, like, Hmong, Hmong Americans who are kind of like my generation and younger, they say kajua. So they mix kajua and gajua together to do kajua. So that is also <laughs> acceptable. No, no, no. Only the correct pronunciation is acceptable. <laughs> Which is funny because when my when I married into my husband's family and they've only known me as gajua, so when my um, white friends start coming around and calling me Kazua. They'll be like, Who, who's that? Like, and now they make fun of me. They'll be like, Kazua. They'll just say that as a way to make fun of me because I did not tell them that that was another way to say my name. So. Kashua. Mm-hmm. Barry. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Someone once said that my name, Kashua Berry, sounds like an exotic fruit. Oh, it does. <laughs> well, I wasn't born here. I'm a refugee. Um, I was born in Thailand and not at a refugee camp yet. Um, we were, my my dad was um, a soldier. So the refugee camps at that time were full. And so since he was a soldier, he was given a special place to stay until the refugee camps were full. And so that's where I was born. I don't remember any of those names, unfortunately. Um, and then we did move to a refugee camp. And the only reason why we were like the second wave of Hmong people that came to America was because my dad was a soldier. And we were sponsored by a Methodist church in California. And we were there for a couple, for two, almost three years. And then we went to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, um, where my mom's sister um, and her family lived. And we lived there for, well, I guess my family's still there. So they still live there. <laughs> I came to Minnesota for college. So my dad passed away when I was 10. He passed away from lung cancer. He was addicted to opium and he was an alcoholic. Um, and he was addicted to opium because he was a soldier. So my dad said when they were shot, that was the only thing that they were given because they, there was no medic nearby. Currently, I work at Big River Farms is a um, program of the food group, which is a food bank. And Big River Farms is um, was formerly known as Minnesota Food Association. And I am the farmer education manager, as well as the Emerging Farmers Conference coordinator. Um, so I work with farmers. I provide either technical support for them and I provide, um, you know, the education curriculum also hands-on learning experiences and field days. 
and also collaborate with like local organizations that share same values as us. So, okay, the farmers that you work with, tell me about those. Our farmers are mainly, they mainly identify themselves as either immigrants, uh, Black, Indigenous, people of color, and women. And these, um, these farmers would basically be categorized as uh, those who have been disenfranchised by systems. And so we provide opportunities um, for farmers with land and education so they can lease out a portion of land and they can do hands-on farming. And, you know, oftentimes they either learn that they really love doing what they're doing and they want to grow as an enterprise or they don't love it and it's too much work. (laughs) And then they realize they don't really want to do it and they'd rather just garden in their backyard, which is fine too, um, because then we help farmers mitigate those risks that they would be investing so much into something that they might not really want to do. And then the upside to that is that we allow farmers to come and farm with us where they have land, they have access to tools, they have access to greenhouse, um, to pack shed, to coolers, you know, and it's a community. So they get to uh, network and learn and glean information and share skills with other farmers that have different practices because a lot of, so our farmers are all multicultural. They all come from different backgrounds. They all have different stories. And so it's a really fun and cool place to get to know people who, even if they look like you, they, they may not have the same culture and they may not have the same practices. So it's a really unique program. Beautiful. What are some of the challenges around the program the program and also the fact that it's uh, the farmers are so diverse and it's, it's um, you know, multicultural things like having to have everything translated in nine languages. And Yes. <laughs> so that is one that is a challenge um, is the language piece, because not every not everything is translatable from English to another language. Um, one thing that we've been talking a lot about is the translation of organic matter, that phrase in itself, because in the Hmong language, it's simply just organic means to uh, not farm without, to farm without pesticide. And you wouldn't be able to say the same thing about organic matter. Um, so we, ha- we provide those services where our classes are taught, traditionally are taught in English. And then they're translate or they have, we have simultaneous interpretation. So there's two types of interpretation, consecutive and simultaneous. And not a lot of people who can interpret can do simultaneous because it is a skill. Um, and so we provide that service for farmers who need it. And currently we provide it in Hmong and Spanish and sometimes in Somali when, when it's asked for it. But so that's one that is very challenging. The other one is actually providing um, content that is culturally relevant for those farmers. So not, at least for me, like I I couldn't speak to the whole organization in itself, but I'm always passionate and interested in creating content or foods or spaces that are culturally relevant for people. Um, As a nutrition educator, 
and a wellness coach, like I don't just teach people about how to take care of their body within the lens of white people, because I think that can be harmful as well. And the expectation is inaccessible for a lot of people. Um, so I think in our program, we have our CSA and our CSA, our members are majority are white people. So that means our farmers have to grow produce that are going to cater to their diet. And that goes the same for a lot of markets, farmers market, is that there's not enough culturally diverse markets. So that means our farmers who are multicultural themselves are subjected to grow produce that are made for other people's diet other than their own. And so, um, so there's that piece that I really think is a, is a challenge. I mean, our farmers don't have too much of a problem growing it because they're making money from it, but that means they would have to grow separate, separate foods for themselves. So ideally it would be great if they can just integrate farming and grow things for their um, clientele and their customers, as well as for their family without having to do these extra steps and peeling extra layers just so that they can be successful in farming. Another barrier is that we are leasing um, through Wilder Foundation. So we don't own the land. So there are certain things that we have to also abide by. So our farmers are leasing from us. We are leasing from Wilder. So there's like a lot of things that we have to go back and forth with. And um, for example, like raising a certain amount of animals, you know, it's, it's very limiting to how many farmers can raise animals and how many types of animals that can be raised because we are leasing that land. So there's like a lot of other things, but I think those are probably like the three. Oh, and also like staff support. I think because we're also a nonprofit, funding can always be, will always be an issue. So not having like enough staff support. Thankfully my position is full-time so I can have more investment in the work that I do, mm. but I couldn't imagine someone doing this job part-time and be able to provide the support that the farmers need. What do you think about nonprofit and nonprofit farming? Yeah. <laughs> Why was <laughs> Why is it, why would funding always be an issue in those situations, in those, in those structures? Because with nonprofit farming, I feel like nonprofits are always going to have to be fund, fundraising. Like you literally need somebody to just constantly look for funding. Because in the past, before Big Rare Farms became Big Rare Farms, a program under the food group, it was MFA and funding was a huge issue because the money that, that they depend on running the program came from farmers. So that means that we were charging farmers a lot of money to do something, you know, like to, to it was inaccessible in that way, basically. You know, farmers will pay a thousand dollars at least to just be in the program that and that doesn't um account for seeds you know inputs and implements and things like that and tools like that they want to get for themselves 
So the startup to just do something that they don't own. So basically because they're leasing and they don't own, they're paying so much money to be in a program and it's just not accessible. Because Big River Farm it has become a program of the food group, we don't have to worry so much about that. Even though we are a nonprofit, but the food group is a really big nonprofit and it is a food bank and um, it has built up its own network. So, you know, there is a, we do have like certain teams who run that area where they are finding money for all programming rather than Big River Farms finding it for ourselves only. So the funding is, so nonprofits, because our services are not meant for us to profit from it, right? Our, our services are supposed to be accessible and things like that. And although that is nice for the people that we serve, then that means we as staff or as an organization have to work harder to, to continue to allow for accessibility. And oftentimes we're, we're, all, we're always competing with other organizations too. You know, we're not just, it's not like the money is just out there for us to get. It's literally us competing with hundreds of other organizations that might have similar, not the same values, similar things that they want to get done. And we're all fighting for for this really small amount of <laughs> money that has been allocated to the work that we do. So the problem isn't so much of um, the nonprofit structure. I think the problem is the systemic structure. And so the need is there. And I think more people should have programs like this um, where they are supporting BIPOC farmers and immigrant farmers who need these types of resources. Do you think being Hmong or being a woman plays a role in your job? Like, do you think that makes it like uh, smoother for you in identifying with farmers or more difficult for you in um, like building connections with outside organizations? Do you think that plays a role in your work? Yeah, I think so. A lot of the Hmong, I mean, a lot of the farmers that uh, we work with are Hmong farmers. And um, I I really, I can see how, how it was easy for the Hmong farmers to gravitate towards me to ask questions or to let me know that they need help with something because the, the language, there's no language barrier in that way. You know, they can just simply tell me how they're feeling. And I will bring it to other staff members. They'd be like, oh, well, I never knew this is how this person was feeling. And I'm like, well, because you probably don't speak the same language and it's kind of hard and they didn't want to offend you. Like there's, <laughs> there's a lot of things involved. But there's also that trust issue, right? As wonderful as this program can be, a lot, I'll just be honest, admin and um, the people who run the program are white people. So there's not a lot of representation. And, and not just, I'm not just talking about representation for farmers, but representation in, in educators and people who are doing and leading this work and advocating for this work needs to also be led by BIPOC folks who, who also speaks the language of the people that are being served. What do you think about 
couple things with this question. So I want to talk about organic farming and both in that, how that uh, presents barriers and also was designed as a solution to conventional agriculture. And when it was designed, it was based on principles of soil health. But as it's evolved into this industry-driven machine, um, the standards have shifted. And even in, like you said earlier, it, it, the meaning of it is skewed, right? And mm-hmm. it, sometimes, sometimes it may mean chemical-free. Sometimes it may mean, you know, so, um, but there are, you know, like groups and certifications and farmers that are actively like involved in, in reclaiming what organic should mean as, as an environmental benefit uh, opposed to something that is destroying the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So what do you think about that? Oh, I have a lot of thoughts, but I will try to be as concise <laughs> and succinct <laughs> as possible. I think the whole process of organic certification is so convoluted. It's cha- it's really hard. It's not translatable. It's not accessible for especially for farmers who don't speak English. Um, it's costly, right? Even though there are programs where you get seventy five percent reimbursed back, but then you still have to put that money up front. The whole process is also challenging because then then it, there's, there's some limitation or there's so many layers for farmers who have their own native seeds. And the fact that farmers kind of have to go through this process of like seed searching, you know, and signing affidavits and things like that. Like, I understand that there's, there's got to be some kind of accountability system, but then when you have systems where you want somebody to sign paperwork such as affidavits, I feel like you take the dignity out of the person who wants to grow something that has been passed down to them. There's, there's a lot of, <laughs> so I can go on and on about that because then you have all of these organic inputs that people can just easily buy if they have money for it. Without, so, so who do you think organic farming is for? I don't know, not for, not for uh, beginning farmers who ain't got no money and who don't have the funds. I live in St. Paul with my husband and three kids. Tell me about those. <laughs> um, I have like the most amazing kids. I really do. Um, my oldest is 11 years old. He His name is Evan, and he is the smartest kid ever. He's so smart, and when he puts his mind into something, he will learn it. You know, like, he learned how to do the Rubik's Cube in one day, just sitting and learning how to do it, and he can do it under a minute. So he's that type of kid. And he's like, if you buy him a 10,000-piece Lego, he will sit there and put it together. And then my daughter, she's eight, Sometimes I have to remind myself she's not a teenager because she acts like one. She is so strong-willed. She is so smart, too. I guess all my kids are so smart. And she is very um, passionate about whatever it is that she knows about. 
and she do not have a problem telling you. <laughs> yes. All right. I, um, learned, I have learned everything I ever need to know about guinea pigs. <laughs> Angela. <laughs> she still be telling me I'm wrong about stuff. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go look it. I'm going to go Google what you just said because I don't know if I believe you. <laughs> but she's super... Um, she's she's very empathetic like she can feel emotions and she can feel whatever's going on in the world and she she absorbs that and we could talk about that in a sec about how uh, whatever was happening in the world and how she perceives it and how it really affects her emotional health and um I'm learning to be more sensitive to that because my mom was never sensitive to my emotional and my empathetic needs and I'm trying to be a better mother by not shutting myself out from her and really allowing her to have that space to just let me know how she's feeling and to check in and to validate that how she's feeling is how she's feeling and the world is a crappy place right now and but there's also really good things you know that I want to teach my kids that exist as well so there is hope and she's very helpful like and she's a she's a really good organizer when she wants to be I can't say the same thing about her room but when she wants to help you organize with stuff or even at school she's really good at it um she's very helpful and then Julian he's my baby he is four and he's a little old man like he has a really old man soul just like his daddy (laughs) but they're all super amazing and some sometimes Michael we just look at them and we're just so thankful for every one of them because I think they're just the most amazing kids and they're very compassionate you know and very aware of the world and that's that's what we want them to is to understand um, that the world is not that great sometimes, but we can be resilient and it doesn't have to break us. And I think our kids are learning more about that each day. So my parents were farmers in Thailand and Laos. And then coming here, they also, that was like one of the first kind of jobs that they got because it paid them, you know, under the table because they literally didn't have credentials to work they didn't speak any English um they didn't have money and there was already three of us kids by the time they came to no four there were already four kids by the time they came to the states here so they basically needed to make a living so they got various farming jobs and even when we moved to Milwaukee I remember my mom and dad working as farmhands And I remember us helping them in the field. Like the first time I've ever had sweet corn off the cob, like that was the most amazing thing. There's nothing that compares to that. And my dad, that's when I learned about, my dad said, you, especially you eat it now when you pick it, because when it's further away from this plant, then the starch, it makes it, he would, in the Hmong tongue, he would say it's powdery on your tongue when you eat it. But basically, he means it gets starchy, right? And I will never forget that. And um, I was 
first introduced to bell, sweet bell peppers because helping my mom and dad, like we would get hungry and my dad would just be like, here, just pick this bell pepper and eat it, you know? And so we, we grew up helping my parents um, and, and then we would lease a small part of land and we would also grow food and we would sell it to the local grocery store. Um, and I remember like having giant buckets, pails, basically the size to put like three kids in, you know, and we would clean and wash stuff in our backyard and package them and take it to the grocery store to sell. So we, I kind of was part of that process with my parents and I love it. And after uh, my dad passed away, my mom, my mom has always grew something. Like my, my aunt owned a apartment and so we moved to one of the units and my mom like turned the whole backyard into a garden. <laughs> She did that by herself. So that was like my mom. She always found a way to grow something. And um, so when I married Michael, my husband, and we were, um, we lived in an apartment and we had a balcony. And I told him, I said, I, I feel restless because I'm not able to grow anything because I was in college and I couldn't grow anything. And we lived with his parents and I couldn't grow anything. And so I said, now we have our own place. <laughs> Even though it's a balcony, I'm going to grow some tomatoes. And so we grew tomatoes and uh, strawberries. And that was like Evan and Angela's first introduction as like toddlers, you know, um, picking, seeing that they were able to pick the fruit and just eat it straight up. And they were so happy about that. And that made me happy. Like I, that reminded me of how I felt. So yeah, everything we did is always intentional about how our kids can be involved from the process of doing seedlings. So even now, like my kids, if we didn't farm at Big River Farms, we would be, our house would be filled with seedlings all over the place. And my kids will be part of that. They'll be like, mommy, isn't it too late? Like, when are we going to start seedlings? Like they kind of know that springtime is when we do it. Actually this farming season, the idea of having, leasing a small plot at Big River Farms has to do with Michael. He really wants to get into it and farming. And I knew that I'm still in school and he's also in school and that I was going to be busy. And I didn't, I didn't want to uh, do too much, but he really wanted to do it. And so we're doing it because of him, <laughs> but it's a learning process for him, for sure. For all of us, Angela is still carrying a lot of trauma around George Floyd last year. And she would cry every day because she was like, um, she was like, you know, people are killing black people for no reason. And she would cry up until I think just a couple of weeks ago where she just stopped crying so much. But she still wants her dad to give her a kiss and hug before she, he leaves, even if she's sleeping, because he leaves in the middle of the night or she's already in bed. And he, she would cry. And before a long time, I didn't know... I didn't know that that trauma was holding, you know, like that she was still lingering and she was still carrying all of that until about probably three months ago where she just kept hiding in her closet and we didn't know. And I was so busy in work and I kind of beat myself up for this because I was so consumed with work and school that I, I missed that part of my daughter where I didn't even realize that she was just hiding in her closet and she would always do that like on a Wednesday because Michael will go on a Thursday, you know? And so Michael went and sat with her and she just told her daddy, like, 
I have nightmares. I'm scared you're not going to come back. That's a reality. My daughter, who is eight, she embodies that, Tiffany. And I just think about all the other Black girls who worry about their moms and their dads, their grandmas and grandpas. And I worry about my dad and my brothers and my, my nephew. My, they're so little right now, my nephews and my sons. And it's, Evan's already 11. He's so big. Three years from now, they're going to see him as a black man before they see him as a young man. So I stopped. I kind of tuned out the news and I tuned out a lot of stuff. So I kind of just hear stuff from either Michael or his family because we have a family chat. And even then I had to mute myself from there because it, it gets too hard. For me um, and so when the Dante Wright shooting had happened my family was up till like one in the morning I mean we were on the phone with mom because our mom and dad lives in Brooklyn Park they don't live far from that area oh. so we were just up you know, and Michael, we were doing the dual call where we could see mom and Michael is on Facebook and mom is on Facebook because apparently that's where they get all the live feeds nowadays. If you're not in the field, you might as well get live, live service some way. And they were like up talking and we, and whenever this stuff happens, I just listen and I just tell my family, what can I do? How can I provide meals for you? I mean, we have a cousin, Olivia. She's an activist, so she's out there, you know. She she um, protested every day. She would send pictures of her rubber bullets and how she got shot, you know, on her legs and um, mace and things like that. And so when I wrote this letter, it took me a long time because I think I spent more time crying and being really mad. <laughs> and the first couple of drafts were not as nice as this. <laughs> I think I was really angry and frustrated. And I feel like this nation just constantly regress. We're just, we're always just regressing. We're not really moving forward. And yeah, when people say, say, Candidly, when people say stupid shit like, oh, yes, we got justice for George the other day. Democracy is working. No. Democracy is not working. Hasn't worked. This is not justice. This is a verdict. That's simply what it is. It's a conviction. I wrote that letter because I was getting really frustrated with organizations sending messages saying like, we're really sorry about what happened. We acknowledge it and that's it. But not acknowledging the systemic racism. 
not doing a call to action. So I think that just because we acknowledge something or we can repost something because we like it and it makes us feel good reposting, it's not the same thing as a call to action. And I thought really long and hard about how, what, I try to put my, myself in the shoes of my white friends. I think oftentimes, and I'm grateful for my white friends because because God bless their heart. <laughs> as ignorant as some people may be, I think they mean well and they really want to be allies, but they don't know how to because they also struggle with this guilt and shame. But I always tell my friends, you should only divulge yourself in, sh- in guilt and shame when you don't do anything. When you close yourself out in that bubble that you live in every day because you can, because that is the epitome of privilege. Even I have privilege as a Hmong woman who have connections with people who people don't see me as threatening. I will never know what it feels like to be a black woman going through what black women are going through, worried about their children. That doesn't mean I don't worry about my black children but I understand that I have that privilege of also being able to shut myself out because I don't have that kind of trauma that black women have. And so I wrote that so that people can see. No, I wrote that because I have the power to do it because I'm in that position and I'm thankful that I have this position. And regardless if people listen to it, I did get a couple of emails of people like, not, not very happy, but whatever, like, yep. Or there's this one specific person, I don't know who this person is, but this person just, at this point, I'm just like ignoring this. I don't even know if it's a, a he or a her, but I'm just ignoring this person's email because I think this person is just really angry So when you're angry all the time, too, then it's also not healthy. But then again, how could you not be, as a Black person, be angry all the time? So I was like straight up ugly crying when I was writing this letter. (laughs) (laughs) And I had to do it where... I don't like it when my, when my kids see me cry because they love me so much that they think they can go fight my demons or my battles for me. And then I cry even more because I'm like, you guys are so sweet. But mommy and daddy should be the ones to be able to fight this battle. Because I want my kids to grow up in a world where we're not repeating history. Like, can we have that? And it is not just the responsibility of Black people to create a space for healing to happen. It has to be collective. And it's not just the responsibility of police, policing or like anti-policing or governments. It is everybody. Everybody has 
the personal and individual responsibility. Everybody has their responsibility within the roles they play in certain organizations. There's responsibilities on all of us. I'll read that letter. Dear friends, I wanted to take a moment to acknowledge the tragic death of Dante Wright and the ongoing unrest. We are mourning yet another black body by the hands of a police officer, praying for peace and comfort for his family, friends in our communities. Regardless if we are in agreement with what had happened, one thing is for sure, a mother lost her son shortly after she heard his voice on the phone during a traffic stop. Another fact that we cannot ignore is that Black Americans are far too often treated as a threat and have lost their lives unjustly. There are not enough words to describe the emotions that our families and community members are going through. We are a mixed family. My eight-year-old daughter has embodied trauma in her little body. She would cry every week, worried that her daddy is not going to come back home when he leaves for work. I struggle with the thought that my sons and nephews would one day be seen as a threat in America, worried that my dad, brothers, uncles, and cousins are going to be hurt or worse, killed because they are Black. I can never know what it means to be a Black woman going through all the things I've mentioned. Unfortunately, unfortunate events like these continue to validate our fears and the trauma of our Black communities and families. These issues stem deeper than just personal culpability. It's individual, it's community, and it's systemic. Farmers and leaders of our of farming organizations, you have so much power in your voice and in your rights. Last month, I asked you to join me to fight against anti-Asian hate crimes. Now I'm asking you to think beyond just hate crimes for Asian communities. Black Americans have suffered a different reality than Asian Americans and other minority groups that stems from history, and generational traumas. Many of us may have the privilege to detach ourselves from that reality by simply turning off social media and not going anywhere near where there are black and brown people. Our black families and community members cannot afford to do the same thing. We must do better to protect our black families. It is not enough to have an equity statement on your website or to say out loud, I am not a racist. Our actions, behaviors, and policies need to be anti-racist and need to encompass change. What can we do to make a difference? One, be educated and be informed. There are so many resources out there. Here's a resource that briefly describes the history of Black trauma. Two, here is a list of resources that you can look into to help you understand racism, have conversations about it, and resources that may help you with trauma. Three, if you have employees affected by these events, specifically Black employees, give them time off with pay so that they can find some healing and have a mental break from work to be with their loved ones. Four, take advantage of the community healing circles. Five, here is an organization that supports the healing of BIPOC communities, Minnesota Healing Justice. Fund and support organizations like this one to do the work of healing. Six, Demand anti-bias and anti-racism training for agricultural and food system organizations, education, health, and police departments. Pay for BIPOC trainers and don't ask them to do the work for free, nor should you undercut their services. Seven, demand for representation and leadership and change policies to eliminate, not reduce, 
racial disparities and equitable, inequitable practices. Eight, demand that officers who police in a community are actually from that community and live there. Nine, it's okay to acknowledge the discomfort and fragility within yourself and the systems we operate under. What role do you play in making that change for a resilient community that sees Black people as human beings? What are barriers in these systems that prevent change from happening? 10, listen to your body, rest. The work we do is greater than us all, but we cannot keep pushing through trauma and hurt. Once again, stand with me. I dream of a world where the history of our children is not a repetition of our current history, where the value of the very existence of a person, regardless of color, supersedes our fears and distorted dispositions. We need to do better. Will you do better? Sincerely, Gajo Berry. <laughs>